Hey everybody, before we get started, two very quick bits of news. One, Reasonably Sound has a t-shirt. You can head to CottonBureau.com and search Reasonably Sound to grab one right now. I think it looks amazing. Thank you to Cotton Bureau for guiding the process and all the RS patrons who helped decide on designs and colors. I'm so happy with how it turned out. Um, And when your shirt arrives, please be sure to send along a photo of yourself wearing it and looking awesome. Two, put them together. The recent Reasonably Sound episode about applause was featured on the CBC's podcast playlist in an episode about how things change over generations. If you want to check that out, I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. On with the show. A few years ago, I went to Area 51. And it was fun, long dirt road, a guard tower, not much else, really. Very mysterious, very deserty. Really, the best part of the whole excursion was Rachel, Nevada, the town, or I guess actually it's a census-designated place, closest to Area 51, right off of, and this is not a joke, extraterrestrial highway. Rachel is small, maybe a few dozen buildings. In 2010, the census recorded a population of 54. There's no post office. The kids bus 50 miles to school every day. The closest gas station is a 40-minute drive. The main attraction is Little Alien, a combination diner, general store, bar, gift shop, and inn that is, I hope you're sitting down, alien-themed. We ate three meals at the Little Alien over the course of our day. Um, I was there to shoot some videos, one of which was in the shop itself. And in the process, we befriended the owner and her staff. We got to talking, mentioned we were in town from New York. And at dinner, later, an employee's teenage son showed up, and after a bit, he carefully offered, So you, uh, you guys are from New York? Yeah, I said. Is it, uh, is it really loud there? He asked. Sorta, yeah. I mean, I don't know, really. You kind of get used to it. Do you, uh, do you hear sirens, like, all the time? And here it dawned on me that, except for the wind in our ears all day, Rachel is quiet. Small population, not much traffic, no industry, no airplane traffic, thanks to the restricted airspace. It is, I mean, as long as you're inside a human body, silence is sort of a lie, but like, man, midnight in Rachel... It must get close. I do, I responded about the sirens, hear them all the time. I live only a few blocks from our precinct's firehouse, so we hear them a couple times a day. And it was like I told him I was a cannibal. And, you know, it's just, it's not so strange after a little while. It's just how we do things in New York. I was going to point out that the Las Vegas Strip, which I assumed, perhaps incorrectly, he had some familiarity with, being that it was only a few hours away, was much louder and for longer stretches than 90% of the New York that I see regularly. My dude, I drafted a response in my head, anywhere is louder than the middle of the desert, but I stopped myself. Maybe his aghastness 
was warranted. Cities stand as a kind of symbol for humanity's ability to generate willingness to subject themselves and acclimate to, and let me tell you, sometimes even pine for, sonic bombardment. The sound of bustle, of activity, of culture. For Nautilus, Susie Nielsen writes, Noise can cause us distress and pain, but it can also help us think, perceive, remember, and be more creative. If it's a drug, then it's a performance drug. And yeah, I feel that. Nielsen says New York is full of noise addicts, and I think that noise withdrawal is maybe something I've experienced. Visiting my parents in the suburbs, sometimes it really is a little too quiet. And some buried deep brain parts are like, Hey, hey man, hey, something's not right. We should be able to hear like at least one neighbor playing Cardi B. Uh, so, hey, tell you what, I'm going to shift us over to a low-level panic just in case, all right? Okay, here we go. But as it turns out, constant exposure to loud sounds can cause autonomic responses resembling low-level panic, triggering these fireworks in your nervous system that you can't simply diffuse or extinguish. And while that may keep you creative, there can also be health risks. So that's what this episode of Reasonably Sound is about, the urban soundscape and its impacts. We'll discuss health concerns related to living in loud environments, who is impacted the most, and the social and cultural importance of having places to get raucous. Which we are. People are noisy. Or really, I guess we're loud. And the world, because of people, is loud. And it's getting louder. Even the oceans are getting louder, thanks mostly to various versions of the combustion engine, but construction, manufacturing, industrial processes, and the collective din of an infinite number of Marvel films. Fun isn't something one considers when balancing the universe. Being played at any given time also contribute to the increased global clatter, along with nightlife, concerts, street parties, drone flight, and ice cream trucks. We're going to accept all of these things, uncritically, for now, as comprising the global noise floor of anthropogenic noise. Unwanted, person-made, sonic phenomena. And so, first, how bad is it, really? The loudness of the world and its impacts on people. After a break, I head to San Francisco to talk to a friend about how constant exposure to loud sound damages more than just your hearing. And um, I would also like to sincerely apologize for being part of the problem. New York is not the loudest city in America. It's not even in the top 10, but San Francisco is. Depending upon what metric you're looking at, noise pollution sources, average loudness in decibels, prevalence of hearing loss, in the last 10 years or so, San Francisco tends to place in the top five, alongside Houston, Chicago, Atlanta, Detroit, Orlando, and a few other usual suspects. 
My friend Trace lives in San Francisco. And well, here, I'm just going to let him introduce himself. My name is Trace Dominguez. I am a science communicator and I uh, focus mostly on like, well, physics and space and biology and all sorts of stuff. He's a producer, host, and science communicator at Seeker, a science and technology-focused media company that makes videos and podcasts. And they're in the midst of Noise Week. So I'm going to let Trace describe it in full at the end of the episode, but just to give you a little teaser. Noise Week is a whole week of episodes about this pervasive idea of noise and what noise is. And I'm in a few of those episodes, so you should definitely go and check them out. But first, before we talk about noise, we have to talk about how its amplitude, and that of sound in general, is measured. And that's in decibels. Basically, a decibel measures something's sound pressure level, or SPL. Loudness is what you hear. That is subjective. SPL is what can be measured. That's objective. With all of the necessary qualifications and postmodern shrugging about what even counts as objective anyway. The decibel scale is logarithmic, so if you measure an increase of 10 dB in something's sound pressure level, that tends to equate to a sensation of its doubling in loudness. There are versions of the decibel scale that are weighted. These account for the fact that the human ear tends to be less sensitive to low frequencies, for instance, and will perceive them as being less loud than they perhaps quote-unquote really are. Postmodern shrug. It's a little more complicated than this, but 0 dB is essentially the near absence of sound pressure. A normal, silent room is around 30 dB, and as Trace will tell us... Anything above 85 decibels is loud, but there are loud things that are below that. So like vacuum cleaners and office noise in cars, those are all above what would be considered normal conversation, which is about 60 decibels. Anything above 90 and 100, you're getting into motorcycles and concerts and things like that, and above 85 is considered harmful. So what sort of harm are we on about here, you may ask? Well, it's the obvious stuff, sure, hearing loss and tinnitus, but it goes way beyond that, too. First, Trace let me know about the impacts of repeated exposure to high decibel sounds on kids in classrooms. So with children, they were the most often studied when it came to this stuff, and they would have impaired test results, essentially. They were giving them a standardized test, and they would say, Children in groups that were near loud environments had lower test scores. They tended to have problems with attention. They tended to have problems hearing the teacher, which would give them frustrated feelings when it came to their education and make them disinterested in education, which then, of course, has long-term impacts. One of the more common long-term impacts was on morale. Difficulty learning means difficulty doing well, means frustration, means, ugh, why bother? Exposure to loud sounds becomes an impulse that sets off an awful feedback loop. Trace also let me know about adults who are continually exposed to loud sounds. Most studies look at the health records for folks who live in the flight paths of airports or alongside trains, who work and live around manufacturing or industrial areas, and who live near highways or in otherwise noisy neighborhoods. We're going to talk at length later about what a noisy neighborhood could be, but for now... So when it comes to the humans who are not children and chronic noise exposure, so like over time, you get things like high blood pressure, you get cardiovascular problems, heart attacks, hypertension, and on top of that, sleep disturbance, tinnitus, and then just general annoyance, which of course is a huge deal and, and a huge problem. If noise is stopping you from living your life, of course you're not going to be very happy. High blood pressure, heart attack. 
from loud sounds. And this can have impacts on you even while you're sleeping. Your nervous system goes into a mini fight or flight whenever your ears pick up something over a certain threshold. You don't even have to be conscious. I asked Trace, how big of a problem is this? Like, how dire are these dinny straits? And he told me. The United Nations World Health Organization says it's a huge deal. They said it's the number one environmental nuisance in developed countries. I mean, I, not, I was shocked. That's shocking, right? I would think we would be much more worried about, like, overcrowding, um, plastic pollution, smog, or carbon emissions. But Trace put it in perspective like this. We're not going to manufacture fewer things, even if we use wind power to do it. We're going to still be building stuff. We're not going to drive less, if even if we're using solar-powered and battery-powered cars, right? The road noise is still going to exist. Until the silent electric motor takeover, I guess. But I take Trace's point. The problem is bad overall, and it's worst in cities. And as of recently, most humans live in one of those. Whoops. By 2030, two-thirds of people will. Whoops twice. So even if we can lessen the impacts of climate change or cut down on waste products, for instance, that doesn't necessarily equate to a quieter human environment. Though in 2016, The Atlantic did run a piece about the future of noise abatement that provides like a few little glimmers of hope. Link to that and the rest of the sources for this episode in the show notes at reasonablysound.com. In another view, though, the increased racket is itself a sonification of the globe's various ecological woes. Increased engine noise is a sonification of increased carbon emissions. Increased anthropogenic noise in general is a sonification of increased population density. The growing racket of material consumption is the ever-approaching silence of finite materials like wood, cocoa, and oil being exhausted. So, in a way, even if an increasingly loud human environment isn't the biggest environmental nuisance, it also sort of is. One important part of this is finding out who, exactly, is impacted by these problems. And if we find them, maybe we can start to solve this global volume crisis. After a break, the people most at risk and likely to contend with loud sounds. Day in and day out. We're just at the tip of the acoustic environmental justice spear, it seems. But there was one big paper last year that picked up some notice in the blogosphere. So we're going to focus on that. Joan Casey et al. in a paper for environmental health perspectives, link show notes, reasonablysound.com, found that in the United States, the people who face the greatest health risks from exposure to loud environments are low-income communities and communities of color in highly segregated cities. 
They reached this conclusion by cross-referencing a bunch of data sets, studies on how to determine socioeconomic inequality block by block, census data, pre-existing data sets of actual empirical evidence, meaning tons and tons of environmental sound recordings, 1.5 million hours to be exact, from hundreds of locations in various parts of the country, and even more stuff that I'm way unqualified to gist in the podcast mill, but you will probably not be shocked to hear that the phrase machine learning makes at least one appearance. So they crunch all the numbers, machine all the data, and they write, quote, multiple indicators of neighborhood socioeconomic context were associated with increased night and daytime noise, including poverty, unemployment, linguistic isolation, and a high proportion of renters and those not completing high school. They say increasing segregation was associated with increased nighttime noise and also block groups with higher proportions of Asian, Hispanic, and black residents generally had higher levels of exposure to nighttime noise than those with higher proportions of white residents. The poorer or more segregated a community, the worse its exposure to high noise levels. And as we learned from Trace, the higher the noise levels, the greater the health risk. So are we not talking then about who can afford to be healthy? How did this happen? For the most part, Casey et al. focus on outcomes. They state directly, nor could we explain why some groups appeared more exposed to noise than others. They do offer contextualizing references to other studies, suggesting where their work may fit in. A more recent paper that they cite is by Lara Cushing et al. from 2015. It's titled, The Haves, The Have-Nots, and the health of everyone, the relationship between social inequality and environmental quality. Cushing and crew studied air and water pollution, and they found similar things, that poor and minority groups are most directly impacted by environmental neglect. In the United States specifically, they write that, quote, exposures to environmental hazards are generally stronger in relation to race and ethnicity than in relation to income or class. And they have a hypothesis as to why. They see the problem as fundamentally one of political power, which they describe as asymmetrical along racial or ethnic lines, as well as along economic ones. People of color and the poor are less politically powerful. How did that get to be the case? Well, it's complicated, but at the heart are three oft-repeated explanations. One, they don't think their vote will matter or will somehow be disregarded. Two, they don't have the time or resources to be politically active. Time off from work, the ability to get to a polling center or city planning meeting. And three, they don't know they have the option of being politically active. Or if they know they have the option, they don't know how to become so. Another important factor here is the uh, camaraderie between wealth and political influence, um, which is well documented at this point, so I won't detail how the more cash you have, the more politically influential you can be. But I do want to note that it is likely race is a stronger determinant for exposure to environmental hazards than income, because in the U.S., race tends to be a cipher for income and overall net worth. You may have heard of the racial wealth gap. The average white family, for instance, is seven times more wealthy than the average black family. So, when it comes time to decide what neighborhood the new Rolls-Royce hood ornament factory is going to be built in, 
who's going to have the power in its various forms, including but not limited to time and influence, to stop it from being built near their house, their kid's school, on top of their local park, and so on and so forth. Given the above, it is unlikely to be people of color. Also, I don't mean to paint Rolls-Royce as some 1980s-style movie villain here, like out to destroy the kids' soccer fields or whatever. I have no idea what their manufacturing sustainability practices or noise ab abatement schemes look like. Um, they're just a very good symbol for, you know, wealth. Uh, also, did you know that the starting price for a Rolls-Royce is in the neighborhood of $300,000? And they get a combined miles per gallon of, like, 14? It's like paying a boatload of money to be invited to have the pleasure of paying further boatloads of money. This just seems impractical to me, but I am not a wealthy person, so. Cushing and Casey and their respective et alls paint a seemingly complementary picture. Multiple layers of social inequality mean lower income and minority groups, largely people of color in the United States, are subjected to the worst pollutants, including sound pollution, and then experience the related health risks. So at this point, you may be led to ask, so what do we do? Like, how do we make it better? When Trace and I spoke, he talked about some regulations suggested by the World Health Organization. They've put together a bunch of guidelines, which makes sense because they see this as a big problem. And they've determined what a livable level of noise is. He said that their ideal noise floor is recommended to be less than 30 A-weighted decibels in that is, bedrooms. That is so quiet. That's really uncomfortably quiet. Like, I don't know about you, but I sleep with a fan. I don't think that would be less than 30. That would be way more than 30. So, um, I, I'm going to, we're going to do a test. Um, yeah. I'm going to get, I have my sound pressure level meter. Sure. With me. We're just going to be quiet. I'm going to go get it right now. Yeah. And... We're going to just see how quiet this very quiet room is. Yeah, and we're actually, I mean, we're in a room now. It was a former conference room that we converted into a studio. Um, it has an HVAC system above it. We're in a corporate office-style building, so the HVAC can't be turned off. So in a studio, we, it's, like, not ideal. But it's quite quiet. Our minimum reading is 45 decibels. And it's quite... 45, 45 A rated. A it's weighted. fairly quiet in here. I mean, it's not really quiet, but it's fairly quiet. A room that I would describe as imminently sleepable. Well, I guess except for the fact that it's in someone's office and is filled with production gear. Midday nappable, let's say. Is twice as loud as the ideal minimum based on that regulation. This... Now, sort of brings us back to square one when we were talking about loudness and sound pressure levels, subjective versus objective. To us, a quiet room would be over, way over by some measure, the threshold for the WHO's proposed regulations. To us, this is not too loud noise. It's perfectly fine and even enjoyable, maybe? Which leads us to one final question for this episode. We want to protect people from health risks associated with prolonged exposure to cacophony, but what do we do if they like it? If the hubbub is deliberate? After the break, I talk to a DJ slash professor about the difficulty in cooking up regulations and ordinances around sonic phenomena 
for reasons involving community and state power. First, we should be clear that living in the flight path of airplanes seems bad, and bad for you, next to a highway also, or under a subway line, which I did the first year that I lived in New York, and I would never, ever do again if I could help it. Holy rumbles, what a disaster. I feel infinitely for the folks who are in that situation and unable to escape it. Abating these noises would, I think, uniformly increase the quality of life for everyone subjected to them. But There is perhaps an additional reason certain spots, and especially those which are home to minority communities, are louder. A reason other than a proximity to pollutants thanks to a lack of political power or economic resource. We are getting, I should be clear, into the realm of theory now. The 1.5 million hours of empirical sound data that Casey et al. cooked up was contextualized in the original study that it was borrowed from using seven, quote, explanatory variables. One of those is anthropogenic, a designation that we've learned is as vast as the Nevada desert. Sound made by humans. But what kind of sound? And why? They admit that they're not sure. Our noise model, they write, did not differentiate between various anthropogenic sources of sound, which may have differential health effects. These areas, they say, require additional research. So without more man hours, and probably at least a few more, we can't know what sounds exactly contribute most to the most noisy neighborhoods. But I think it may be instructive to at least consider especially in the face of potential regulation and increased scrutiny on the idea of sound levels as a reflection of quality of life, the idea that some communities may be louder on purpose. What if, we may ask, there are aspects of a loud acoustic environment which are not harmful, but nurturing? What if people choose or foster a noisy neighborhood and even here we come full circle, prefer it. I talked with Larissa Kingston Mann about this. My name is Larissa Kingston Mann, and I'm a professor of emergent media at Temple University in the Media Studies and Production Department in the Klein College of Media and Communication. Uh, And I'm also uh, DJ Ripley, a a co-founder of Heavy, which is a monthly event in New York, and longtime member of Duddy Arts and Surya Dub, which are two other sound system crews and very interested in and participating in lots of noisemaking in various ways. We're going to get back to city noise, but a little setup first. Larissa has done a lot of work studying Jamaican music and party culture and has done field work in Jamaica observing and being directly involved in the party scene. A link to some of her work, which is fascinating, is in the show notes. She talked to me for a bit about the kind of, like, 
power vacuum that occurs when the state doesn't fully support its citizens or really doesn't fully support a subset of its citizens. And so those people are left to find ways to build a community and assert a kind of collective identity outside of whatever's recognized and supported by the dominant culture. Large sound systems are one way they do that in Jamaica. The way people assert their identity is to have, like it is, to have sound systems. The more wealthy communities are quieter, she told me, seemingly almost by edict. The more wealthy shopping centers, for instance, play more American pop music and less of the local music the island is known for. People who live outside, at the edge, or between those locations have to create a space for themselves, which reflects their values, culture, and history, because one doesn't exist otherwise. These sometimes big, sometimes not community affairs, impromptu and pre-planned, involve sound systems, DJs, food stalls, and all the pageantry of dress, drink, and dance you'd expect. Larissa explains there's a kind of intimacy involved in this. Intimacy doesn't just have to do with closeness. It has to also do with vulnerability, like making yourself vulnerable to others in some way. That is, I don't think it's enough to just share something that is meaningful. I think there also has to be risk involved in intimacy. And besides just being a good read on what intimacy is, this can lead to a cultural intimacy where people outside the dominant culture find each other and see and are seen as members of the same community. When I'm talking about cultural intimacy, part of what I'm talking about is starting from the reality that societies in general, most societies are places of inequality in which certain cultures are held up and supported as respectable and desirable and good, and then other cultures are identified by being disreputable and bad and threatening. So if you are part of a culture which uh, is looked down on by the broader society, just asserting your identity in that culture can, is a potentially is an intimate act because you're revealing something about yourself which could make you a target. If you're part of a dominant culture, intimacy isn't exactly required or maybe not even really possible because there's no risk in sharing who you are. And for those who do feel at risk, publicly displaying or celebrating their culture in order to mitigate that risk and to be seen by others of their own community, one option is to create what are called exilic spaces. That's exilic as in relating to exile. This kind of intimacy, though, is very important. You need to find your people and you need to be able to shore up that sense of who you are, even though it's risky to do that. And so that's where the concept of exilic spaces comes in, because what I have found is that in order to really affirm the kinds of cultural features that are especially looked down on and that put you especially at risk, at some point you're going to need a space in which to assert that, in which you have some control over what's happening. This works in Jamaica for street parties put on by communities un- or under-supported by the state. And in conversation, Larissa also pointed to Vogue ball culture as another such exilic space. And there's a similar read, I think, on things like block parties house parties, car culture, especially car audio and engine modification, dirt bike culture, which, I mean, I don't really know if that's a thing, but if my experience where I live is worth anything, the moment it is 70 degrees outside, those guys are blapping around. Anyways, the point being, in most urban environments, traffic is the number one reported source of nuisance noise. Number two is neighbors. 
neighbors account for the vast, vast majority of noise complaints. And so if we're talking about anthropogenic noise that contributes to a noisy neighborhood, when it's not trains or airplanes or the Rolls-Royce hood ornament factory or a truck honking its horn at the intersection, in not every case, but I would guess in a lot of them, it's likely loud sounds made by communities of people. Sounds used and needed to build and reinforce culture. But whoa, 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 whoa. wait, 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 wait. Needed? Need, you say? How so? Cultural connections for people whose culture is not the dominant one are vital for your sense of self and identity and connection. And so it is a precondition for doing other things, you know, fighting for other kinds of rights. Like I think it isn't possible for people to organize, to do other kinds of more overtly political things without having that sense of connection. And so while it may seem like just noise, there's a way to look at this as something like the sonic marker of a base level collectivizing action for a community of people who feel at risk within the dominant culture, and so are creating a space for themselves and others like them within it. And well, okay, all right, all right, all right, you may now say, but must it be so loud? Like, isn't there a happy medium here? And well, I'm sorry, but maybe not. It's not one-to-one with cars and dirt bikes, but David Welch and Guy Frameau for a paper in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health asked a small number of club goers, DJs, and club employees about why they prefer a loud environment over something more sedate. And respondents say stuff like, the loudness of the music distracts them from the stress of their lives. It literally drowns out their anxiety. They say it creates an intimate atmosphere within a public environment, forcing people to be close together to communicate. And probably most significantly, they associate volume with identity. People associate the loud club being so effusive and bold in its volume with coolness and to a certain degree masculinity, but that's a whole other conversation. The point being loudness, deafening loudness, seems in a very real way to be empowering. To which, again, you may say, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, but like, I'm trying to sleep. Just go to the club. That sounds great. Be in the club. Do it inside. Play play your loud music in the doors. Rev your engines somewhere it's legal and I can't hear it and you're not breaking the noise pollution laws. And well, Larissa had something to say about illegality that I found really fascinating. I would argue illegality often becomes very important because it keeps it outside the system in a certain way. That is, even though often illegality also goes along with certain kinds of unsafeness, you know, that is things that are unlicensed, unregulated, lack of fire regulations, right? All these, like they do bring real risks. But the problem is that legalization requires that you make your work legible, your community legible to the law and to the state. Uh, The state doesn't actually, isn't designed actually to welcome all kinds of bodies and histories and experiences and communities. Where an ordinance has established something as illegal, it allows and in a sense encourages the filing of a noise complaint. The law, and more specifically the noise complaint, becomes an agent of terror, as Larissa put it to me. 
because one is requesting the presence of a state power in a location which has been constructed because state power is hostile to the very people which occupy that location. The sound-slash-noise divide is stark here. The sonic phenomena of the house party or car club being the most sound to its participants, in that it's meaningful, desired, enjoyable, communal, and the most noise, disturbing literally to the point of illegality, to those who may call the cops on it, or to the representatives of authority that may regulate or punish it, alongside traffic and industry noise. From a place of concern, and concern for health and for well-being often, stipulated, but, you know, as much as I hate to align myself with the Gipper, there may have been a sometimes contextually dependent kernel of truth in his superlative that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The solution? I don't know. But my gut says that the first step, perhaps, is to internalize the highly contingent, culturally and contextually determined process that converts sonic phenomena to noise. And to be sure that whatever norms we create through law, regulation, ordinance, or whatever, protect not just health, but culture and community. Which, I guess, are just another kind of health, but you get my point. It may be that certain communities are exposed to a louder environment because the environment reflects the values of its community. And in regulating noise levels, it would be ideal to not throw the dancing baby out with the airline bathwater. The idealization of silence is one part naturalism bias, I think. Rachel is largely lacking in the bustle of human activity. It is natural or naturalistic. So it's hushed. And I think we often consider this a kind of beginning state, which other locations would ideally return to or aim for in some regard. But the idealization of silence is also a question of taste and culture. It's not just the natural which is silent, often the familiar and the expected is silent. We are silent to ourselves. One likely does not hear their own noise, but we very much hear the noise of the other. And where their sonic intrusion is galling or unexpected, which is perhaps always, or where it's simply undifferentiated from other sources of noise, because it exists outside of an infrastructure which supports encloses or contextualizes it, we may seek to regulate or minimize it before understanding it. Or, as Trace put it, We want to believe that we are silent and civil, and they are not, whoever they are. If I can other you and say, like, I feel like I can control you by othering you, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to internalize that somehow, because it makes me feel better. When I'm loud, it's not because I'm barbaric. It's because I... You know, my house is echoey. What can I do? It's Italian marble. (laughs) 
My name is Mike Rignetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can see me talk more about noise in many different senses over at youtube.com forward slash seeker for their noise week, which is currently in progress. They have a lot of great stuff. Here, I'll let Trace tell you more about it. We wanted to kind of really dig into it. So we have our podcast episodes coming out about noise for the next week. We also have videos coming out around uh, the noise inside of our cells when they're differentiating themselves from each other, which is really cool. Um, we have a video coming out from Lauren, one of our other producers, about SETI and noise out in the universe. So we're trying to like kind of build this this whole theme week together. And also, as you may have heard, Reasonably Sound has t-shirts. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to cottonbureau.com and search for Reasonably Sound. They have been a long time in the making, and I think they look fresh as heck. A big old thanks and shout out to all of Reasonably Sound's patrons, subscribers, and eventually t-shirt wearers, with double extra thanks to Keith Brony, Harry Brisson, Johnny C., Trey Connolly, and Richard Hansen. If you like the show and you want to support it, you can donate some of your hard-earned cash per episode at patreon.com forward slash reasonably sound. Patrons get access to the Reasonably Sound Slack, newsletter, sound effects collections, and behind-the-scenes stuff like in-progress scripts, bloopers, and other things that don't make the final episode cut. For this episode, that's going to be a story about a long, defunct unit of the Amsterdam police called the Silent Brigade. Even a dollar an episode makes a huge, huge difference. You can also support me in all my internet endeavors with a monthly donation via Kickstarter's new subscription creator support service, Drip, at d.rip forward slash Mike Rugnetta. Of course, however you can support the show is greatly appreciated. Share it on social media, tell your friends about it, write a review on iTunes, or even just come by and say hey on Twitter. It is all awesome. Our guests this episode were Trace Dominguez. You can find me on youtube.com slash Seeker, which is the Seeker YouTube channel, or on my personal channel, youtube.com slash Trace Dominguez, or Twitter or Instagram also. All of those are the same, Trace Dominguez. And Larissa Kingston Mann. Larissa-Mann.com. So that's L-A-R-I-S-A-M-A-N-N. I also have a website that has a lot of my mixes on it, and that is soundcloud.com slash R-I-P-L-E-Y. I lurk about in other social media that people can find me if they want to in those other ones. So. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND and me at Mike Rugnetta. Reasonably Sound's visual design is by Tita Tepp, and its theme and act break music are by Will Stratton. Hey, man.